The RoboDebt Royal Commission hearings continued this week. RoboDebt saw the federal government levy 433,000 people with debts totalling $1.7 billion under a scheme that the commissioner called amateurish, rushed and disastrous. The Commonwealth now accepts that demanding those payments was unlawful. But as we've discussed before, robo-debt is just one example of something that's becoming more and more common around the world, algorithm-based debt recovery. Indeed, welfare state automation businesses were estimated to be worth $440 billion globally in 2021. This week, the collaborative journalism organisation Lighthouse Reports released the results of what it describes as an unprecedented experiment on a welfare surveillance algorithm. The report is called Suspicion Machines, and Gabriel Geiger is an investigative journalist at Lighthouse Reports and the lead reporter on the Suspicion Machines investigation. Gabriel, welcome to Sunday Extra. Thank you so much for having me, Julian. The centrepiece of the Suspicion Machines investigation is an algorithmic fraud detection system used in Rotterdam, Holland. It was designed by the consulting firm Accenture. Why is Rotterdam the focus of the investigation, Gabriel? Rotterdam isn't the worst example of the deployment of this technology. Um, we've sent, uh, we've looked at the use of this technology across Europe um, in eight different European countries, but it was the one example that actually decided to be it transparent. And what I mean by that is they decided to give Lighthouse Reports full access to an algorithm the city used to predict who was at highest risk of committing benefits fraud. Um, and what I mean by full access is essentially giving us the algorithm so that we could experiment with it, try putting in different types of data, um, and getting an output risk score. Um, and what that allowed us to test was whether certain groups of people um, were receiving higher risk scores than others and why. And that's really a game changer, isn't it? Because one of the challenges looking at any sort of algorithmic fraud detection system is that often the, the algorithm itself is proprietary information and it's hard to actually work out how the decisions are made. That's correct. Um, most most of these welfare um, fraud systems are hidden behind IP or governments that are just resistant to disclosing any, any information about them. Um, oftentimes, uh, the argument is made that if uh, the public knows what sorts of information and data is fed into these systems, that they may be able to evade um, government controls around fraud or abuse in the future. Um, Rotterdam decided to give us full access because it wanted to be a transparent organization. Um, and and there's sort of been a precedent set earlier. The Netherlands, like Australia, already had an, um, a welfare fraud scandal where where 30,000 families were wrongly accused of fraud. So there's been about a, a lot of political pressure in the Netherlands to be more transparent about the way these, these systems are used. Gabriel, could you describe for us how the algorithmic fraud detection system that was used in Rotterdam actually worked and then give us a sense of what you found by being able to get inside that algorithm and play with it. Sure. Um, so this algorithm in Rotterdam, um, what it does is it takes 315 data points about each welfare recipient in the city. These data points range from sort of demographic information like someone's age and gender to um, subjective social worker assessments of the beneficiary. So social workers noting down, oh, well, they weren't dressed so nicely today. Um, to, you know, sort of more banal things like how many times you've emailed the, um, the city government or um, the length of your last romantic relationship. So all this data is taken by the algorithm and every person is assigned a risk score between zero and one. 
And the people with the highest risk scores are then automatically flagged for fraud investigations. Um, in the Netherlands, that's um, quite a punitive process. So, for example, we caught up with people who um, had had fraud investigators raid their homes at 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, you know, sifting through their laundry, counting their toothbrushes. Um, we also found examples of even minor infractions that, or not understanding the rules resulting in people having months of their benefits clawed back. So the consequences can be quite dire. Mm. When we were actually able to obtain the algorithm, what we were able to test is who does the algorithm see essentially as suspicious or at most high risk of fraud? And what we found was that the algorithm... Um, unilaterally assigned higher risk scores to people based on their gender. So it found risk, women to be riskier than men. And furthermore, there was another class of, of data around um, Dutch language proficiency, which is um, a proxy for ethnic background. And we found that um, the algorithm uh, gave higher scores to people who didn't speak Dutch, um, so who were, had a foreign background. Mm. Um, those were the two top-line findings from, from our investigation. And what's really interesting about the way you've done the investigation is that you can really track that when you change the variable of gender, for example, you could see how much it affected what you've described as the risk score. Uh, on that scale, how significant were those variables of language skills and gender? Right. So usually not one of these variables would be enough to put someone over the edge and have them uh -huh. flagged for investigation. But what we found was that we, when we started combining them, suddenly they were. So, for example... Um, if you combine the fact that someone is a woman with them having children, so their mother, and the fact that they don't speak Dutch, that could be enough to really put someone at high mm. risk for being investigated for fraud. Um, I think for gender specifically, um, we saw that changing that variable could, you know, move someone, you know, thousands of places up on on the the list, um, which was thirty thousand people in total. Um, so yeah, things like gen a change in gender could be make massive swings in, in individual risk scores. And of course, going up the list then puts you in the class where you might be subject to investigations, which, as you've described, could be quite punitive. Correct, yeah. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Gabriel Geiger, the investigative journalist who led the Suspicion Machines investigation by Lighthouse Reports. Uh, Gabriel, the granularity of those 315 inputs at one level is impressive. And I suppose that leads to the question of, is a fraud detection algorithm that's as specific as that, is it better at detecting fraud than other systems? That's a good question. So we spent a bit of time investigating this. Um, we do find that the algorithm is um, slightly better than random selection, um, but not by much. Um, <laughs> we uh, had a, an expert review the performance results of the algorithm. So this is Margaret Mitchell, formerly a Google AI ethicist and now um, lead ethicist at Hugging Face. Um, and what she told us was that the algorithm was essentially random guessing, um, slightly better than random guessing. Um, so what we found is despite this massive um, data collection that this mm. system didn't actually work very well. Yeah, slightly better than random but not by much is hardly a slogan you'd put on the, on the outside of the box, is it? <laughs> no, no, not really. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not the best uh, pitch, sales pitch. Uh, one of the other things I found fascinating reading the Suspicion Machine investigation was about some of those subjective factors that you referred to, uh, caseworkers entering notes, and the fact that sometimes positive comments actually counted against uh, recipients. Was that right? 
That's correct. So um, when it came to these subjective social worker assessments, the algorithm isn't actually smart enough to figure out what the social worker wrote. And what that means in practice is that the algorithm just looks, did the social worker write a comment about someone's outward appearance or has it been left blank? So if they wrote a comment, it was a one. If they didn't write anything. And what that meant was that um, someone, a social worker could write, um, you know, looks really nice today or could have wrote, they look terrible today. And those things would both be flattened into a one and both increase someone's score. So the content of what people were writing in those fields didn't actually matter. It was just that whether something was written in there or not. Yeah, and when these algorithms are used, a critical factor then is what knowledge the people who are using the systems have and the human oversight that comes with it. Did the caseworkers know, for example, that if they entered a positive comment, that could result in a negative risk score? Um, no, we had no indication that they knew that. Um, and, and you bring up a good point, which is when you're using something like a machine learning algorithm with all these different variables and the sort of complexity, layers of complexity that adds, um, it's difficult for, for the humans in the loop to actually understand what's going on and how their own actions um, influence um, these risk scores. Uh, so I think it's a huge, uh, a huge issue in terms of sort of accountable decision-making in, in government. Rotterdam obviously gave you access to their uh, fraud detection algorithm. Uh, can I assume from that, Gabriel, that they're not using it anymore or are they just using a different or better algorithm these days? In 2021, they decided to put the algorithm on hold and they're currently trying to build a better one. Um, interestingly, um, since we wrote the piece, they released um, a, a sort of a note to the city council saying that they're trying to build a more transparent and better algorithm, but that this is something that's really hard to do in a way that's both explainable, accurate, and legal. Um, so it sounds to me like they could be, that could be a way of saying that they may be giving up. That's really interesting. Uh, of course, it's not just Rotterdam that you've looked at as part of the suspicion machine investigation. Uh, and you mentioned that you've looked at uh, a few different countries. I, I gather one of those was Denmark, which is one of the world's best funded welfare states. What did you find there? Right. So Denmark was an interesting example because it's kind of seen in Europe, at least, as, as the quintessential welfare state. Um, you know, it spends, I think, more than 26% of its GDP on, on social services. Um, and what we found was that over the last 10 years, um, Denmark has built essentially a massive surveillance machine um, in its welfare system that collects data from everything from, you know, people's travel movements to who they may be in a romantic relationship with, to profiling people based on their nationality and connections to non-European countries, um, collecting info on the size of their houses, how many cars they own, um, their taxes, income, employer. Um, in, in total, nine different databases. Um, and, you know, this has essentially been politically enabled um, and, and uh, hasn't seen much sort of daylight. Um, so one of the other things we found there as well, that this system and, and uptake of this technology was driven politically by this quite strong obsession with welfare fraud. And what we kind of try to point out in the piece is that a lot of um, sort of hyped up numbers and statistics of welfare fraud are mm. thrown around, which when sort of uh, seen by academics, um, maybe don't hold so much water. Um, so yeah, I think that's important context as well about the use of these systems, right? There's often sort of political motivations that are um, driving their deployment.
Yes, and the extent of welfare fraud is projected by the consulting firms who themselves are selling the algorithms. Exactly. It's really fascinating stuff, Gabriel. Uh, what, in your mind, are the implications of the suspicion machine's investigation for policymakers who clearly, at some level, have to be dealing with automated systems? Well, I think first and foremost, like you said, um, I don't think these algorithms are going to be going anytime soon. And I think it's naive to think that they will be. So um, I think the best case scenario would be a world in which, you know, we accept that there's harms of these systems and try to regulate those and, and minimize those harms. Um, and in the European Union, um, there's currently a negotiation over the an AI Act, which is um, supposed to be this landmark legislation that sets down new rules for how AI systems should be deployed, like the ones we audited in, in um, Rotterdam. And you know, a key sticking point of that um, of those negotiations over the act are which which AI system should be considered high risk and therefore subject to more stringent regulation. Um, and I hope that our investigation shows that AI can used in welfare can be high risk. That we're talking about people who um, are receiving money that they need to make ends basic ends meet. Um, you know, to pay rent, pay bills, uh, have enough food for their kids at the end of the month. Um, and I hope our investigation shows the necessity of um, bringing these systems to account and the need for um, journalists and civil rights watchdogs to um, to take on more projects like the one we did um, to expose when these systems have overreached into people's lives um, with you know pretty devastating consequences, as we've shown. And just finally on that point, Gabriel, the, the byline for the Suspicion Machine report is quite something. It's like a paragraph long and it's got more names in it than you'd find on many uh, academic or scientific papers. Could you give us a quick insight into the process behind the Suspicion Machine, by which I mean your process at Lighthouse Reports? Well, like, I, like you mentioned at the top, um, you know, the Lighthouse is a collaborative journalism organization when we teamed up with Wired for this one. Wired, um, you know, invested a lot of resources and time and manpower into really turning the, to, into some great stories. And we also worked with local reporters on the ground in Rotterdam from the local paper there called Fair Spaton. I've done this project if we didn't um, team up with journalists, um, both you know, sort of in large media like Wired and also local journalists on the ground. Um, and I think the need for you know both civil society and journalism to come together and, and work to take on some of these sort of larger scale projects. Um, of course, doing a project like this also requires different skill sets. Um, we needed to have um, you know data journalists and technical journalists who are capable of, of actually doing a, an audited. Um, audit an algorithm. Um, and we needed academics willing to peer review our methodology mm. for, for auditing this algorithm, um, which is one of the reasons why there's so many names in the, in the credit <laughs> section. Well, Gabriel, uh, congratulations on the report and thanks very much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Thanks so much for having me. That's Gabriel Geiger, lead reporter on the investigation series called The Suspicion Machines, which is about algorithms used to detect welfare fraud in the Netherlands, in Denmark and many other places as well. And The Suspicion Machines was a collaborative investigation between Lighthouse Reports and Wired magazine. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.